When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Library Science Channel of New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Andy Gustafson and Charlotte Nunes, editors of Transforming the Authority of the Archive, Undergraduate Pedagogy and Critical Digital Archives, which was published open access by Lever Press in 2023. Featuring perspectives from educators, undergraduates, and archivists who are affiliated with community and institutional archives, This book explores efforts to deconstruct and transform the institutional authority of the archive, and it details new roles for archives in undergraduate pedagogy and new roles for undergraduates in archives. Andy Gustafson is the head of fellowship and instructional services at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas at Austin, and Charlotte Nunes is the dean of Lafayette College Libraries. Andy and Charlotte, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Hi, thanks. Um, Before we begin talking about your book, I would really love if you could each introduce yourselves. Uh, Maybe you can talk a little bit about what your interests, your research interests are, and what kind of journey your education path has taken. Uh, And then if you want to tell us a little bit about the work you currently do in libraries as well. Andy, do you want to start? Hi, yeah, thanks. Um, So I research and write about uh, ethical and anti-racist pedagogy. I often write and research about teaching primary source literacy, um, maybe case studies of what's going on in our classrooms here at the Harry Ransom Center. And then in the past, I've written about American photography and photographic archives. when you say education journey, should I go all the way back? Go as far back as you'd like. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I do I do often tell people that I started my I did my undergrad work at UCLA because I'm often teaching undergrads, right? So I want them to know this is the major that I had as an undergrad and this is where I went from there. So I started um, in undergrad at UCLA. I did my graduate work in American studies at UT Austin here. And um, that's how I found the Harry Ransom Center. So I had a graduate research assistantship, like essentially an internship in the reference department here. And um, 
And I got hooked. And now I am the Associate Director for Research Services here. So I lead the team that is providing access to the collections uh, in the reading room and in the classrooms through fellowships and through the reference program. Super. Thank you. Charlotte, do you want to share a bit about yourself? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think there are a lot of parallels in in, in our journeys, um, Andy and I. Um, so I also did a PhD at UT Austin. Mine was in English. Um, and I went to UT because I was so interested in archival research. And of course, UT Austin has just absolutely incredible archives. So I basically went to UT for the Harry Ransom Center, did all my dissertation research there. Um, also had some opportunities to um, do some sort of graduate assistantship slash project management types of gigs over the course of my PhD. And like Andy got hooked. Um, I got really interested in digital archives um, because really I came to that through my dissertation research where I was really relying on archival collections across the globe. And I was keenly aware of how the availability of some of those collections online was impacting my research agenda and, you know, my research project, my dissertation essentially, right? So that actually became a real source of intellectual curiosity for me and, um, as I got more involved in that kind of conversation about, you know, which collections get digitized, which which don't, um, that kind of intersected with when I was finishing up my dissertation, trying to figure out what was next. I ended up doing um, a postdoctoral fellowship at Southwestern University um, with the Council on Library and Information Resources. So that was a clear postdoc in academic libraries. Um, and that really set me on my path. I was um, doing a lot of work with digital archives in that um, role. And it was through that clear um, postdoc network that I got connected with my job at Lafayette, um, which was to direct the Department of Digital Scholarship Services, um, working really closely with the Department of Special Collections and College Archives. So also very immersed in digitization initiatives and but working at an undergraduate focused institution. Um, so always thinking about, you know, what's the role for undergrads in these digitization initiatives? What's the role of digital archives, digital collections in the undergraduate experience in undergraduate education? Um, so I did that for several years and then had an opportunity to step into the um, interim dean of libraries role when the previous dean um, left, eventually got the permanent gig. And that's how um, I arrived where I am today as dean of libraries. Um, and I remain really interested in that kind of continuum between, uh, you know, student experience, student experiences in the archives and student belonging, student success, like, you know, how all these things are really interrelated, I think is really foundationally what activates me in the Dean of Libraries role at Lafayette. Super, thank you. So shifting to this new book, Transforming the Authority of the Archive, can you talk a little bit about the genesis of the project? I'm really curious about what sparked it and what your initial goals were for the book. Um, I don't know if you want to start, Charlotte? Sure. And Andy might need to correct me on some of the details, but this did, we, this did begin, Andy and I um, co-chaired a panel. Was it American Studies Association? I believe it, it was. was. Yep. Um, this was years back and um, we pulled together, pre, you know, pretty much an all-star panel for that, which we were really excited about all having to do with um, archives and pedagogy. I think that might've even been the title of the panel. And um, Beth Belukos, who was with Lever Press at the time, was in the audience at that panel and eventually approached Andy and I about the possibility of, um, edit, you know, doing an edited volume on the topic. Um, I think we were both, you know, Andy and I are not, you know, we're not um, 
on the tenured faculty track, right? We're not on the tenure track. We're not. So, and yet we both kind of had maintained research profiles, um, had space within our careers to conduct research, had sort of support and moral support and material support to conduct some research in the jobs that we had. And so we decided to go for it. Um, and then it was a matter of, I think it was the, ultimately the volume includes both panelists from that original panel, but also a number of other people. Um, we did put out a call, a CFP. So it's kind of a mix of Andy and I, I think it does strongly represent our own kind of professional network. That, that's absolutely very strongly represented, but there are also absolutely newcomers, you know, that we had not been acquainted with, um, before that time as well. Um, and yeah, we really wanted something kind of cohesive, but also widely and diversely representative, um, lots of different types of institutions, um, different types of projects. That was all really important to us. So I think that, that was a really driving motivation from the beginning. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, one of the things that we were talking about a lot in the beginning coming out of that roundtable from American Studies was that there were a ton of books that had influenced us on um, the intersection of pedagogy and undergraduates and primary source literacy. And a lot of those were case study driven, as ours is to a certain extent, but they didn't have that... Um, or they, they did have an engagement with the theoretical piece, but we were also wanting to think about what happens when you take this focus on critical archives or for us, critical digital archives and bring that to undergraduate pedagogy and all of the work that we were doing in special collections. So we also had that as, a, as an initial goal as we were coming out of that round table um, to try and figure out how to bring that to the book. And I'm so glad you just said that because I wanted to talk more about this term, critical digital archives. Um, you mentioned in the, in the opening of the book that it uh, provides a really good framing for the book overall. And so for listeners who aren't familiar with the term critical digital archives, what do you understand critical digital archives to mean? And what kind of kinds of questions should be asking about our work if we're engaged with critical archival studies? I don't know who wants to try to answer that first. Um, I, I'll start only because Charlotte took the last one, <laughs> but Charlotte, you're going to have to jump in because this one, this one was hard for us. We went back and forth about how to frame this and actually wrote a definition before our contributors were working on their contributions because we wanted everybody to engage with the definition explicitly, even if they didn't wholeheartedly agree with it or they wanted to recontextualize. We wanted them to have our shared definition so that they could incorporate it into their, into their piece. So it took us a while to write it. We are building on the work of um, Claire Batters Battershell and mm -hmm. uh, several other contributors who ha have coined the phrase critical digital archives. And they are also drawing on and we are drawing on interrelated fields. So critical archives more broadly, that's Caswell, Sebekovich, Punzalan, Carvajal, um, and then community archives. So how do all of those um, interrelate? and inform what we were writing about. And then we wanted to take that definition, um, which I, I guess I'll try and do. Um, the definition that we landed on is that our work takes seriously how um, critical archival studies foreground that no archival collection or building or process is neutral, 
or objective. And it asserts that there's value in critically modeling data, especially archival data and digital projects so that we are always highlighting the perspectives that have not been historically centered in collection building, but are very much present. So essentially what we're doing is following Battersill and all of the contributors there who bring critical archival theory to digital archives and take seriously that our students and our archives are able to engage with, think about digital praxis, recognize that archives are contingent, never neutral, and that they replicate power. Close enough, Charlotte? Beautifully done, Andy. <laughs> Beautifully done, I will add. Um, yeah, I, I just to sort of um, kind of build on on the kind of story that um, Andy sort of putting forth of how we kind of landed on this. Yeah, I mean, I think critical archival studies is really the broadest framing of what we're engaging with. Um, but the digital piece does come in, right? It's it's increased. That's an increase. You know, Hannah Albert Abrams, I think, has also been really influential in that space. Um, for me, it's about, you know, so many of the projects in our book and at large um, that sort of foster student engagement with archives, um, the digital piece, it, there are the archives, there are the sort of physical archives themselves, there are digitized archives, you know, digital surrogates. Um, and then there are these sort of digital frameworks, tools, methods, um, platforms, right, that allow, that sort of provide ways in for critical engagement with archives, whether those are physical or digital. And I think that that ultimately became really kind of forefronted in the project. You know, not every every single project in the book, I'm kind of going through in my brain now, um, necessarily had a really powerful digital component, but a lot of them do. And I think that that is because of the, you know, kind of horizons of possibility that are opened up by the digital realm when it comes to archival engagement. So I think that's also why, because Andy and I, I mean, I remember us back in the day going back and forth about whether to include digital in our title, because the fact is like not all the most kind of cutting edge, innovative um, undergraduate engagement with archives is digital. So we don't, you know, we, it's, it's a, it was a judgment call that we ultimately made. And I think it was the right one. Uh, but it's interesting to think, you know, what will in 10 years, will this mean anything? What will this mean? Right. Is it just, because, right. That's why I think critical archives Critical archival studies is a much more durable term ultimately than critical digital archives. But I think for the purposes of our project at this time, it made sense to highlight that um, kind of digital component because of what, because of how transformative really um, these sort of digital platforms, methods, et cetera, et cetera are for fostering um, of whole new ways of undergraduate engagement with archives. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and that like, I don't know, uh, ephemeral is maybe the wrong word, but like not lasting, non-durable aspect of the digital component is a weird thing to wrestle with, but it's really meaningful to reflect on right now. So, um, and I guess like speaking of, you know, the broad range of projects, um, I won't ask you to speak in detail, like on behalf of the authors, but there's a really large and impressive group of, of contributors. There's 10 chapters in this book and, um, and a, a lot of contributors to those. And I would love if you could talk a little bit about what kinds of experiences are are being shared or being represented by those contributions? What kinds of archives or archival projects um, and what kinds of relationships the various contributors have to working with archives? And I'm thinking about this largely from the perspective of 
all of the readers who I think might identify with different archives, different types of archival work um, that's represented in this book. So I would love to hear more about that. Um, Andy, do you want to start again? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the things that we knew we wanted to do was highlight projects that placed students either as active participants in creators, co-authors. We wanted projects that placed students at the center. And we also wanted to feature a range of institutions. So there are contrib contributors who are speaking to experiences from small liberal arts colleges, HBCUs, IVs, large R1s. Um, and we were trying to capture a ton of different perspectives relative to that while keeping at the core or at the center um, students as participants in the, in the projects and in their own education. Um, the other thing that we tried to do was look for, I think I already touched on this, theoretically backed case studies. So we were hoping that reading about these would inspire new ways of thinking and grappling with the projects that we know practitioners are designing right now and thinking through. So um, I don't know, Jen, if that answers your question, but we we really did intentionally build a web together. So we were talking about when we were looking through all the CFPs, when we were reaching out actively and inviting contributions, we were looking for and talking through whether we were hitting um, as enough of a broad range of contributions, enough of a diverse range of contributions, um, and enough experiences that were putting students' voices at the forefront. Yeah, I mean, I got that sense as a reader. Um, I was really impressed by, like, as you mentioned, the range of institutional types, and the number of student co-authors was really impressive. I don't find that in every book that I that I read, so that was that was really neat. I will say it was. Um, very intentional and also a little bit easier for us because of the subject matter. So when you're focusing on critical digital archives and you are intentionally looking at the ways that those types of projects teach students that they can shape and interpret and create and critique, you're going to want to put student voices in there and the educators that you're working with who are writing about their experiences inherently are privileging student voices. That's like at the nature of the work of critical digital archives. So it was easier to find. And also it was important to us that that be intentionally foregrounded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Charlotte. Yeah, yeah, I will add a little bit. Um, I think, you know, some one of the sort of outcomes, takeaways, um, what have you from the book that I think is really important is how um, students participating, you know, not only is it amazing from an information literacy standpoint, right, to sort of understand, to really in a kind of visceral and intimate way, understand the contingent constructed nature of archives, um, that they are not neutral, that they are not objective. Um, and to kind of break down the gatekeeping function of the archivist and um, make it much more of a facilitator, you know, kind of a facilitator role <laughs> um, that is, you know, not not just to sort of serve um, faculty, researchers, scholars, et cetera, but to really um, play a core role in the undergraduate and the academic mission of a college. You know, so I'm coming, of course, from that kind of liberal arts college perspective. Um, everything is about the academic mission. And so I think really, we we really wanted to kind of highlight and celebrate just the efficacy, the pure efficacy. It's incredibly expedient to um, kind of convey or sort of involve students in um, 
learning the fundamentals of information literacy um, and and contingency, et cetera, um, you know, how knowledge is constructed um, via these archival engagement projects. Um, and I also, and I think that that was something that a really, something really beautiful to me that comes across in the volume is that these changes are very much afoot and have been afoot for a long time. And that, you know, the, the archival profession itself has been shifting and transforming, like truly transforming, um, in these really productive ways. And the role of the archives, the role of the archivist and it's, um, the orientation to the undergraduate, um, population, um, the academic mission, the kind of core, um, the core learning outcomes that we're going for is all is all transforming and kind of has transformed. So it's also sort of giving voice to some of that. Um, just maybe just trying to sort of surface the transformation that has already occurred and and celebrate that and also provide, you know, maybe some pathways, guideposts for continuing transformation moving forward. Totally. Um... And I guess, I mean, thinking about guideposts, there are a lot of different kinds of guideposts in this, but like one of the, one of the things that was exciting to read about was the very diverse like techniques and engagement practices that were being used across all these chapters, really to like do this work of challenging authority in the archive. Um, so, you know, without necessarily talking in too much detail about any specific project, can you give an idea to listeners of like what kinds of projects and practices they can read about in this book, what what the different chapters are exploring? Um, I don't know who wants to um, start I can, that. I can take a turn cool. since you started the last couple of months. Um, so one thing, I, I think one one definite, um, and of course the book is broken down into sections that you know reflect some of these thematics, um, but I think students participating in the building of the college archives is one um, sort of key area where I think you know students um, are really interested. Many students are very interested in the history of the institution where they're doing their undergraduate work. Um, and there's something really enriching um, to their sense of belonging about seeing themselves reflected in that history um, in, in one way or another, or feeling like they're part of some kind of genealogy or some kind of community, um, some kind of, uh, and it can be even quite contemporary, you know, like a, a recent alumni community, right? And I think that um, actually playing a very active um and participatory role in narrating the history of the institution. Um, it does have a very transformative effect for many students, in addition to creating a, a much a much richer, you know, institutional um, archives. So I would say that that's, and I think the actual sort of the practical, the practicalities of involving students and sort of following their lead in generating institutional history um, and sort of record keeping in that way. That is something I think that is very valuable in this volume because it, it's very daunting. It's it's very daunting. It's very, um, can be resource intensive. It certainly is time intensive to kind of support, provide the sort of support, mentorship, practical skill building, right, for the students to um, do this work effectively. Uh, so I think that the book does provide, you know, several of the chapters provide um, really practical um, kind of down, really practical nuts and bolts, step-by-step -step, um, kind of ways in to doing this kind of work that's, um, you know, student-led, student-generated, um, but also sustainable, long, you know, sustainable in a long-term way by the institution and by the staff who are there in a longer-term way than the undergraduate student population is. 
Definitely. Yeah. Andy, is, are there other, I don't know, engagement yeah. practices you'd add or, or even like things, projects that inspired you to think, oh, I never thought of involving students in that kind of work or that kind of project. I mean, I think the, one of the things that we were doing when we were looking at the types of projects that we were looking at ones like Charlotte's named where students are linked up with perhaps archivists, librarians, educators on campus who are going to be there for a little bit longer. And the students are coming in to an ongoing project that maybe iterates every semester and contributing to it, or they're sh actively shaping institutional history like Charlotte's naming. But then we also saw a couple of projects um, in, in various chapters where the students are doing independent research or they are working in small teams in projects that are engaged in the broader community. So maybe not a community-based archive as we defined it in a couple of places, but, but engaged with projects that are attempting to shape the world beyond the university and use the university infrastructure to do that. So that was pr pretty cool for us to see um, and, and think about the differences in labor uh, on the part of the students, how you do that ethically, on the part of the archivists or librarians or educators and how you do that ethically, and then how you engage with your community partners um, when you're representing all of those different groups, student, educator, archivist. Um, so we saw a lot of projects that were pushing the university out um, into the broader community or inviting community members um, in to work with students and to lead the, the knowledge creation that was happening there. Um, let's see, the other thing we saw that was really interesting was thinking about the shape of the semester. So what does that do to a critical digital archival project? Um, what does it make possible? What does it make painful? And how are educators and students like pushing in and through that to make a project that lasts beyond themselves. So that was kind of fun for us to sort through. Else, I feel like that might have caught most of the the shape, the different shapes. We talked yeah. about student voices already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was just really excited to also read about like students involved in different kinds of labor, looking at um looking at metadata or thinking about curation. And like being introduced to those aspects of our work, um, and it made me think about how like sometimes I think there are, are parts of of um, labor in libraries or archives that are maybe like harder to involve people in on like short term projects or whatever. But it was inspiring to read about um, students being involved with like a lot of aspects of of that labor. Yeah. Um. One of the things, Charlotte, in one of the chapters that you co-authored, um, it's about the Queer Archives Project at Lafayette College. And one of the things I really liked in that chapter is you list these like very clear institutional factors or like preconditions that enable transformational work for the projects that you're then engaging on. And so, you know, not to put you on the spot about that chapter and that institution, but I'm curious more broadly thinking about the contributions in the volume, were there broader takeaways that you got looking at all of those thinking like these are institutional factors that seem to make transformational work more possible or maybe institutional factors common threads that present challenges or limitations for the type of transformational work in, in different settings. 
Um, yeah, I can speak to that. And I would, it would be interesting to hear, you know, Andy's take on this as well. I think many, at, in my experience, you know, working at a few different institutions, oftentimes, um, and I would say this goes somewhat for my current institution as well. You now the academic library is a little bit of an autonomous entity within the institution at large while being completely integrated in it and absolutely subject to senior administrative direction. Um, it's, we still, there is a feel to it. It has a feel to it, right? That it's its own little institution within an institution. So I think that the, the leadership piece is so important there. I think um, something that really made the Queer Archives Project um, possible to launch in the beginning was that the former dean of libraries at Lafayette was extremely supportive and was like, yes, this should be a flagship signature library supported project. And that really made it possible. You know, that made it possible to to kind of um, support, launch and sustain in the way that it has been. Um, now that I'm in the dean of libraries role, I am even more conscious of how important the I'm kind of at the at the senior administrative level, um, how important it is to have the sort of senior college administration supporting what we are doing as well, um, celebrating it, highlighting it, um, making sure that it's a priority to right to um, cover it in college communications or include it in college communications. Right, is like this is an example or an element of the student experience and, you know, to um, make sure that it's not kind of, that it is, it is sort of centered in, in ways that it should be centered. So that is, you know, for me, that's a really important area of culture shift and something I'm extremely aware of is how important it is for um, leadership, you know, for leadership to be, uh, to sort of share these values, right, or to um, kind of support these values, um, not just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, DEI, um, yeah, cool, like, right, I have a sort of cavalier um, kind of attitude about it, but to really be willing to kind of think deeply about um, this type of work, the role that it can play in an academic mission, the academic mission of the college, um, and what kind of support it needs, you know, what the benefits are of sustaining it, and what the resources are Net, that are necessary to sustain that, right? So I mean, the Queer Archives Project in particular um, is at a really interesting juncture right now, right? Like I've moved into a new role, so I can't be playing the same role that I played in that project historically. Um, and and yet it's going really, really well because I would say, you know, I, I transitioned into the, the Dean of Libraries role. So I am making sure that it remains a priority, right? And that yes, the leadership of that project is taking a different shape. The way in which it unfolds semester to semester looks different, but it's it looks different, but it's exciting. You know, it's looking different in new ways. We started a new um, teaching fellowship attached to it that is funded out of our library operating budget. So every semester, a faculty member is engaging it in their coursework, and so it's the way that it is. It's interesting. It's it's interesting to kind of reflect on the ways in which the you know lead library leadership whether that was my the previous dean or me in the current role has sort of facilitated the success of the project by centering it by resourcing it um and by prioritizing it essentially yeah super andy i'm curious if there were any themes that stood out as you were reading and editing chapters of like wow these these are clearly factors that make this possible i mean i think it's interesting listening to Charlotte um, talk about the role of leadership because <laughs> this book took us a while and we both moved into leadership in the time that we were editing and creating. So I'm 
review. I was reviewing the book and missing my time in the classroom. Um, I think a lot of the contributions relied on educators willing to take risks. So yes, Charlotte's right. And of course, we're going to say leadership needs to be supported because we're both in leadership now. But the, the educators needed to try something new. They needed to be willing to clear the institutional hurdles of like, hey, we're just going to pilot this. Hey, we're just going to we're just going to try. Hey, I realize that we might be pressing a little bit on the bounds of fair use or um, open access with this. And let's let's experiment. Let's tolerate that risk together. Let me get my leader on board with this and then let's let's try something a little bit new and that requires risk tolerance it requires being able to understand the field that you're teaching in and push it just a smidge forward and then get everybody on board and it requires um, educators who are listening to their students and getting those students voices front and center and that so that i think is um is that an institutional precondition? No, I know. I think that's an educator's mindset and, and ability to navigate all of that is a through line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, someone recently said to me that I can get away with a lot if I just like call it a pilot project. And I think that is a mindset, right? Of being like, okay, this is an experiment and it might not work well, but then I'll just like report on why my pilot project didn't didn't turn out as planned and and seeing you know a book of like educators taking risks it's exciting and kind of makes you think outside the box a little more yeah yeah um well one other thing and this is this is more of like a nuts and bolts question of of working on the book um that I love asking folks who've worked on edited collections is really what you learned in the process, because it's always a learning process to do something like this. And so I'm curious if there's anything you can share about what you learned as editors, um, advice you might share with other people who are undertaking similar projects or um, advice you've made note of in case you ever do something like this again yourselves. Uh, Charlotte, do you want to start? Sure. <laughs> I will never be doing anything like that again. <laughs> jokingly but omg yeah um no it was obviously wonderful and like working with andy was an absolute dream i mean it was it was such a nice way such a bonding experience for us we would not have been in touch like that if we hadn't been working on this book we had three kids between the two of us over the course of that time i mean it, i think that those were it was five very very frantic years for us um, but I actually got a piece of advice. I remember that I think I told you the story, Andy, the day that we basically finished it, the day that we finally were like, oh, it's done. Like yeah. it's, every single thing is done. I bumped into a colleague on campus and I was telling him, you know what? I just, this is done. I just finished a big project that took five years, basically took five years. And he said something really funny. He's like, oh, was it a co-edited, you know, was it like an edited volume? And I was like, yes. And he's like, those take five years. Those, he's like, uh, and I was like, that is so interesting. He was like, he's worked on a couple of them himself. And he's like, yeah, life happens to if you, especially if you have multiple contributors, like we had, you know, an upwards of 20 contributors, I think, to this volume across mm -hmm. the 10 chapters. Um, that's life happening to 20 people a pandemic happening, a, you know, all kinds of stuff happening in life and careers, et cetera. And 
Um, it was, I, I think Andy and I both felt frustrated at times about, you know, how long everything was taking, but looking back, I think it needed that time. It needed that time to right. And I think that it was, it's, it's, you know, kind of the best version of itself it could be because it had the time to marinate. And I think Andy and I brought a lot of patience and compassion to the editorial process with ourselves and also hopefully with our contributors, with each other. Um, and I think that that, you know, I, I feel happy about the project because I don't think that it, I think it was mostly enriching for our contributors as an experience and not, you know, hopefully super onerous, you know, um, because we tried not to impose a lot of demands, you know, in terms of timelines, um, so much we tried to be really, um, accommodating and, um, yeah, I think that if I were to do something like this again, I would just want to be aware that it's okay for a, you know, a co-edited multi-essay, you know, collection to take five years. That might just be how long it takes. Yeah, yeah. because we did not know that, right? Like we, this was the first time for both of us mm -hmm. editing something of this size. And so heading we into that no together, idea. we really had no clue. And also I will say that we were, um, it was important to us that we work with Lever Press. We were really um, committed to their, their values, their, their own commitment to open access and digital publishing. And um, we had a lot of compassion extended to us from Beth Bullicos, Sean Gines, and Carl Levine at that press. Like all of them shepherded this project through in ways that were really supportive as well. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I'll say that helped us is... So Charlotte and I knew each other in real life, but we checked in and sometimes would just work to that meeting. So we would put the next meeting on the calendar and then we were like, okay, I guess we got to scramble to get that done. And Charlotte introduced me to this delightful app that we use for asynchronous video communication. So we will like... Um, or we would, I miss, I miss you, Charlotte, because we don't do that anymore, but we would send each other video messages, commenting on a contribution or saying like, Hey, can you take the next whack at this section of literature review? I I'm toast or I have no power right now, or this child has got this issue with this ear infection. And so, um, being able to send each other video messages and then listen to them when we were calm it was such a gift yeah. it was just really fun to work on this together about something that we cared a lot about that mm -hmm. felt like the foundation to our own careers while we were both in moments where we were growing our careers where we were growing our families and we were supporting one another so yeah i agree with charlotte i'm not sure i'm going to do this again but I'm so grateful that I got to do it with her. I, I yeah, and thank you so much, um, Andy, for mentioning the Lever Press folks. And you know, and, and I do think that's worth reiterating and emphasizing, right? Like it was important to us. It was specifically the opportunity to do this with Lever Press that I know I was originally really excited about. Um, I, and I think Andy and I are both positioned to do that again because we're not tenure track faculty. So like, yes, we and we are and we are both associated with libraries, archives, right? So to do to publish with a press that's really trying to do something experimental and transformative itself, right? Which is it's essentially like a multi-library consortium, multi-institutional consortium um focused on open access, um, digital, you know, publishing, um, library publishing, right? Sort of um 
library supported scholarly communications, all these types of areas are, I think, where Andy and I are professionally really, it's just really important to us to, to support those experiments in hopes that they, you know, ultimately will ultimately become a little bit more established, right? And Lever Press is doing great as a press and has published some, you know, phenomenal stuff. Would we, frankly, have, would it have been realistic with for us to to publish with them as early to mid-career tenure-track faculty? Probably not. So that too, I think, was a really um, enriching experience and something that was really exciting to me. Um, something I feel really proud of that we we're able to kind of, by means of our project, also maybe... Um, contribute to a really values-driven effort in scholarly publishing. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, thank you. And I've taken a lot of your time, but before we wrap up, I would love if you could each share a little bit about what you're working on next, which I know is not a co-edited volume that will take five years. Um, but I'm curious if you if you do have any other projects that emerge from this book or like things that, that are completely different that you're finally you know, getting around to, maybe that time has opened up. Um, Charlotte, do you wanna start? Sure. So um, I would say I'm pretty much in the thick. So I'm um, about six months into the permanent, you know, to the Dean of Libraries, non not interim but the actual permanent job um and so i'm in the thick of laying the foundations you know sort of establishing and de defining establishing my leadership style um and also laying foundations for the future like really thinking a lot about strategic planning um i am there's the college is doing strategic planning right now as well so this is a really we're about to um this summer most likely we'll launch the next the college's next capital campaign so now is the time to be thinking about you know where what's the vision for the library for the next 10 to 15 years like possibly the next generation <laughs> where do we um where do we want to emphasize and um what do we want to highlight and i'm mean, something that i i think lafayette college libraries does very well already and that we have a ton of potential to to lead even more um, has to do with the role of academic libraries in the, uh, you know, the student experience and um, both both in a curricular way and also in a co-curricular way. So I think there's a lot of interest among students in the kind of professional um, skill building opportunities that come with opportunities to connect with the work in libraries and archives. So I've been um, working a lot to give shape and structure to, uh, you know, to undergraduate fellowship opportunities, other opportunities um, that are sort of structured and funded for undergraduates to um, do research and practical skill building opportunities in libraries and archives. Um, come up with different models for that, experiment with different kind of pilot projects. Um, one thing I'm excited about is um, a collaborative exhibitions program, which we're, we're launching pretty soon, um, where we're fielding proposals from anyone, students, faculty, staff, um, com combinations of, of stakeholders on campus who want to partner with the library on um, an exhibition in either one of our sort of defined official exhibition spaces or pop-up exhibits. Um, and we've already supported, and it, we've been supporting that kind of work in an ad hoc way for a very long time, but I'm interested in kind of formalizing these types of things, making them a little bit more, so it's not about word of mouth or who you know, but there's an actual kind of way in to this type of work um, that's a bit more equitable and um, gets us in touch with various different nooks and crannies of campus and the campus community that maybe, you know, we're just, we're a little bit less connected with. So, um, and then just generally speaking, something I kind of mentioned earlier that 
the connected, you know, there's so much connection between and among <clears throat> um, student success, student belonging and libraries, right? And I think that it's something I've been um, talking to like the Office of Institutional Research about, the Dean of Advising, you know, these various different sort of administrators on campus is how can we get the role of the library reflected in um, data gathering efforts about retention, about student retention, faculty retention, student belonging, like all these different sort, you know, these um, kind of markers of success that as it stands, do not involve the library at all in assessment. And I happen to know for a fact that the library at our college plays a huge role in student and faculty retention. So I see my role as Dean of Libraries to sort of highlight that. And I think it really relates to our book project because uh, I think these sort of undergraduate archival engagements are huge for student belonging um, and student success um, by multiple measures. Um, so they're real there. I would say the book has was great in terms of me kind of articulating my own values, you know, as a as an administrator. Um, and, and I find myself it's been really interesting to be kind of practicing and manifesting those values in a new role. Terrific. Thank you. Andy, is there anything that you want to share? Yeah. Gosh, <laughs> um, Charlotte, I'm listening to you and I want to hear if you're designing a proposal process for all of the contributors or because now I, because I got, I got to talk to you about that and how it's yeah. <laughs> You will. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. So um, I have moved, like Charlotte, I've moved from um, the work I was doing when we were editing this into um, leadership. I'm now leading the research services team at the Harry Ransom Center. And so I'm finding that a lot of stuff that I'm starting to talk about with when I get together at monthly groups of people who have my job or friends and um, the things that I'm starting to talk and think and write about and pitch panels on are all about sustainability as a, pra a core practice in what we're doing and how we cannot have access forward special collections institutions unless we're thinking about how to make the work sustainable because we're, we're not, we're just not going to be able to think creatively about how to provide the broadest possible access if we're burnt out. And so I'm thinking about that right now. I'm not sure where that's going to go or if I'm going to end up writing. As we've said, I'm not going to end up doing another edited collection, but that's that's where I'm writing and thinking and pitching panels and stuff like that. Um, is, is around that issue of, if, okay, we are an access first institution. How are we going to fold, of course, diversity, equity, inclusion into that work, but how are we gonna make that work sustainable for the people who are doing it? Yeah, that's exciting, super. Uh, well, thank you both so much for chatting today. Uh, once again, I've been speaking with Andy Gustafson and Charlotte Nunes editors of Transforming the Authority of the Archive, Undergraduate Pedagogy and Critical Digital Archives. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you've been listening to New Books Network.